everyone. Welcome to a new episode of ISPM Talks. I am your host, Marcela hoffman Mourão. Today I have a conversation with ISPM teacher Robert Kaspar. Robert is from Austria and also teaches all over the world, including Russia, France, and of course, in Austria. The timing of this conversation is quite nice, as this past weekend, the city of The Hague hosted a different edition of the Dutch Special Olympics for people with intellectual disability. The focus was on training rather than on competition due to the restrictions because of the pandemic. But Robert was a Special Events Coordinator with the Organizing Committee of the Special Olympics World Winter Games 2017 in Austria, and these events have a special place in Robert's heart, and he is going to explain why. He was also part of the beating committee for the Salzburg 2010 Olympic Winter Games. So, in our chat today, in addition to sports events, we will also be discussing teaching, the importance of networking for a successful career, and digitalization in sports. So, let's get to it. Robert? Welcome to our ISPM Talks. Um, super happy to have you. Um, looking forward to our conversation and hearing your experiences, which is vast, quite vast. So um, yeah, I would like to, to start first and foremost. Uh, I have already introduced you uh, in, the, in this recording. So my first question, and I like to keep that question for all the guests that I have coming up is, Regarding teaching overall, what do you find? Wh uh, why do you find teaching in sport management important? Well, first of all, uh, teaching is and has always been across all generations uh, transferring knowledge and expertise, uh, but also these days uh, encouraging the next generation to come up with their own minds and own views and to try to contribute to develop them into critical thinkers. Why is this uh, especially important in sports uh, management? I think in sports, and we'll think we'll discuss this later on, we face, we face many, many challenges ahead. We see and we just saw the Super League creation, the commercialization of sports, which fair enough uh, is a trend that is uh, similar to any development in the world. We see globalization and we see globalization in sports. But sports management has to consider this. And the Super League was a good example. It's just not about the marketing function. It's not only about the financial function. It's not only about human resource management functions. So the ordinary textbooks on any business uh, and management or business administration function does not give the students a complete picture. So that's the excitement and uh, the special feature and focus of sports to teach the students and to understand the role of the fans, the role of the athletes, the importance of the athlete in developing sports and also sports events. Yeah, absolutely. We had a, a guest in one of the classes, I don't even remember anymore, and uh, one of the students asked, 
what is our chance as sport managers students to reach management positions when you see so many former athletes in this management positions and the guest actually answer well actually I think it's great you have great chances because we came from just our experience as athletes we don't have the background information that you are receiving now and I think that is key uh, to to make the the good managers uh, of the future I don't know if you agree with that that's a question I always ask uh, my students if you have a small or large uh, sports event who is the better CEO of the sports event is it the athlete who completely understands the sport or is it the manager of a large corporation who has led a large team who knows the finances the marketing and the first answer is always yeah it's an athlete with sports management education but this is very rare and then in sports i think the sports manager can draw the expertise of the athletes to run the sports events to understand athletes but it's much more difficult for an athlete who has been successful in uh, running or ski jumping or any sports to understand all the business administration functions because the best sports event or the best league with the greatest games doesn't serve if the football club if the tennis club is bankrupt later on also one thing that i would like to know before we move on more into your expertise is you joined the ISPM program right at the beginning. You know, even before the first cohort started, you were already in the in the planning phase, the de development of uh, our program. With all your experiences that you have in different academic institutions, you decided to join this newborn team. What? Why was that? What was it part of? Um, something new you wanted to try do you you saw the potential why did you want to join the this recent for recently formed program i knew rosalie is a person that is uh, passionate about sports uh, and uh, i love international projects so and i had the time uh 2016 and uh, um it was a team from Barbados and Bermuda and a colleague who's teaching in the United States. Uh, there was really a project. We designed the program from scratch based on the competences uh, that we believed were relevant for the students. So it was a very intercultural, international project. And that's what is uh, the ultimate goal if you have the diversity in a room. Or a group of students uh, in the classroom later on that actually will then uh, benefit from uh, this uh, thinking and designing of a project. Do, do you notice the difference of having students from yeah different cultures, different countries in the classroom versus just teaching mostly students from the same uh, country? Do you notice any difference? Yes. Um, teaching students from around the world uh, then increases the lessons learned from the students. Let me take a global class classroom. Um, if you have students from all five continents and then you can ask a student from Costa Rica, so what's the situation in the Latin American sports organization? And you ask the students in China, 
how do you see the face recognition access control and CCTV cameras uh, in your sports venue? And then you ask uh, maybe an Australian student um, and you get a totally different uh, perception. So you talk about one subject, but the cultural and then uh, the nation background of the students will then give in different perspectives. And especially if you talk about sports venues, this is interesting. The Chinese, uh, they are grown up now with the system and they appreciate it. Others can't just imagine that this is actually good. So we then get into the ethics of uh, um, the data protection and uh, the big data situation. So that makes the teaching live uh, and you bring in the global perspective, not just from your experience, but uh, you have this debate on global matters. Um, okay, so now Robert, how did you get involved in the world of sports and in the world of sports events? Very early on, um, I think the first touch point I was working uh, during my studies as a ski instructor. And during these times, uh, the Alpine Ski World Championships took place uh, in Austria. Uh, and I was there for two weeks, uh, basically observing the sports event, uh, looking behind the scenes, meeting the athletes. Uh, and that started the passion for sports management. That was in 1991. Then I did my master thesis on uh, ski tourism in New Zealand. So another sports uh, focus. And the biggest project then was my PhD on the sustainability of sports events, looking at the Olympic Games in Lillehammer and the um, Alpine Ski World Championships in Sierra Nevada in Spain, which actually got uh, postponed mm. for a year. Uh, and there, I started to build up my network, uh, both in the Olympic world as well as in the uh, winter sports world. And from there, it uh, one step uh, went into the next. During my PhD, I got uh, the offer to be environmental director for the Nordic Ski World Championships. So I was uh, working five years uh, leading uh, this department, creating 25, 21 environmental projects for the ski world. Uh, championships. And from there, I went to the Alpine World Ski Championships. Uh, and ultimately, I was head of the Olympic bid for Salzburg for the Olympic Winter Games uh, 2010. Robert, how I'm, I'm very interested to learn about your involvement with the Special Olympics, the Special uh, Olympic World Winter right, Games in Austria. So how was your involvement with that? And are you still involved with that? I see on your background there, the Special Olympics. So, yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say the passion comes from my daughter. She is a Special Olympics athlete. She already competed at her first national championships. And by this, I am totally inspired uh, by the world of uh, Special Olympics. And of course, uh, when we actually got uh, the honor to host the event uh, in Austria. I was involved in small projects before, and then I joined uh, the organizing committee as a special events uh, coordinator. And then, of course, it uh, was great to be part of the team and uh, 
of the emotions that this event brings with it. And uh, it's nice that uh, the dialogue with a team of Special Olympics International in Washington has kept going. So I've uh, served as an Evaluation Commission member for the next World Games uh, 23 in Berlin and for the upcoming World Games uh, where the bid is just uh, going on right now. Yeah, that's nice. And what was her sport? Uh, Leonie was competing in athletics and running. Oh, cool. Very cool. Um, looking at the history of the event, so I was reading because, as I said, I didn't know there was the, the, the winter. So you see for both summer and for the winter editions, a lot of the host cities were in the United States. Um, and most recently, what I've read is that Sweden was going to host and then they backed down uh, on the commitment due to yeah financing issues and then it will be in Russia. So this, despite of the importance of making sports available to everyone, the Special Olympics seems like it's also facing these barriers with, with difficulties that other IOC events are also uh, facing. That is some countries are saying, no, we cannot uh, afford, we cannot host them anymore. So how do you feel about this, given your involvement with Olympic Winter Bid as well, uh, having to face that issue as well for the Special uh, Olympics? Well, any nation that has hosted the event uh, is really positive uh, because of the impact uh, on the tourism destination. We speak about thousands of athletes spending time with their coaches and a lot of families come along. So one, there is a clear tourism impact of spending in the destination. But the second one is uh, much harder to grasp. Anybody who has hosted or has been at the Special Olympics event and The Hague is uh, hopefully going to see the national games in June. Uh, is so, uh, so much speaking about the emotions and the excitement of sports is the purest sport. An athlete taking the seventh place would still be proud of his or her achievements. Another athlete might be totally disappointed. But for any, for most of the athletes, it's about competing, training, being part of a family. So for a destination, of course, it is a challenge for a World Winter Games. Uh, the budget is about 30 million euros. For summer games, we are speaking more towards 80 million euros. And that is some funds you have to uh, acquire from governmental sources or from private uh, sources. And then, of course, uh, any destination has the choice of hosting a variety of sports events that are competing against each other. Do you feel like perhaps uh other governments need to be more aware that this event exists or they all know and it's just an uh yeah we cannot do it uh it's different the awareness is uh very high in certain countries and lower in other countries uh, then really it depends on the media interest espn mm -hmm. in the united states is really very interested Eurosport in Europe uh, as well. And then really it depends on the countries and the organizational buildup. France, for instance, is a country with a low profile in Special Olympics mm. where, versus uh, Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands have a long tradition in 
hosting national games, sending delegations uh, to the world games, having a lot of trainings offered. So it's really depending country by country, but it's a global movement across uh, the world. Yeah, and, and I think what you've mentioned about the, the pure joy of the sport, that's something that at, at the top level now we kind of miss, you know, it's about, you know, the competition and the record, the time, the, the gold, and sometimes the joy of the sport is forgotten. And uh, there you see, you know, the pure joy. It was one of the most remarkable moments in 2019. I was invited to the uh, World uh, Summer Games in Abu Dhabi. And uh, as a guest, uh, I was invited to hand over medals at the medal ceremonies. And I, even now when I see these uh, three faces, uh, they were actually a team from Syria. Mm. It's a country already in a challenging situation. Then. Uh, this guy's won gold, uh, and I looked into their faces, and I can still, I still get emotional when I see the eyes and the enjoyment, the joy they have uh, when receiving the medal. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine. I can only imagine. Uh, yeah, the emotion, and like you said, coming from Syria, I mean, being there already is who fantastic given all that's happening in the country um and this is a topic that i'll definitely look more into because i'm very interested to see how is brazil where i'm from um involvement in the in special games um and i hope perhaps you know i hope it's it's good but yeah i have i have a few doubts about that so i'm gonna do my research on it because i think that we need that we need to see more of that if the leadership of a country uh, gets interested, uh, they also then sometimes say we have to do more for these athletes. Mm. Because sometimes they're forgotten in, in governments. Uh, yeah. Where is the training offer? Where is the sports offer? Um, for instance, when we hosted, our minister of sports visited, our president visited, the prime minister visited, and the sports minister changed the law to support the Special Olympics athletes uh, and the Paralympics athletes and the Olympic athletes now have the same rights. When they're traveling to World Games, they get the same funding for their travel. So it's really uh, equality and inclusion also from this perspective. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's really, really great to hear. Uh, sadly, I don't believe that that's the, the, the rule that the, that's still the exception uh, if we look at other nations, but Hopefully we're going that direction. Uh, talk, talk now about your involvement with the Olympic winter bid um, that you've participated. As I said, there's you see more and more about countries consulting the population before to see if they want to host the events. And many times they're saying no. And particularly with the winter games, I think the, the, the fact that require facilities that may not be used later also play a role. So how, how do you feel about um, this challenge, you know, participating in, in a bid, but also knowing that, yeah, a lot of public money will be needed too. So yeah, how do you grasp that? Well, the sad story is Austria, Switzerland and Germany in the past 50 years have launched 15 Olympic bids and have lost all of them. Mm -hmm. That leaves some frustration some concern uh, and decreases the interest in bidding 
uh, in the future. On the other hand, we have to understand the residents, the taxpayers, like with the games in Olympic Games in Brazil, the taxpayers say, what is the benefit of hosting sports events? So I think the event owner, the World Sports Federations, the bidding committee, the national bodies have to explain what is the benefit of hosting, of bidding for, and then hosting the event for the local community, for the stakeholders, for the destination brand, uh, for the country. And it's quite surprising. Switzerland, as Austria, depends very much on winter sports tourism. And the Swiss have voted various times against the bid. The Canadians in Calgary have voted against the bid. So really winter sports destinations vote against the bid because of concerns for cost overruns. And so I think that one of the reasons why smaller events like the World Winter Games in Special Olympics, a budget of 30 million euro instead of uh, say 1 billion euro for an Olympic Winter Games, is much easier to organize or a Youth Olympic Games of the IOC uh, are much easier to handle for a destination. Do you think we're getting to a point, a turning point, that something we'll need to give, uh, perhaps even the IOC will need to look over all the demands and there might be a change needed? They are. They have changed uh, amazingly and very surprisingly. Uh, in the latest reforms, uh, the minimum capacity of the sports venue was abolished, not reduced, but abolished. They, when I talked to the IOC in 2016, uh, they were quite concerned about what I coined the polycentric concept, mm. a concept uh, of uh, hosting in other countries to check, do you have the venues in your country? Yes. If not, do you really need a new venue? If not, is a temporary venue an option? If not, uh, why don't you look around in the geographic area and reach out to neighboring countries to use their sports venue. Of course, it has some logistical challenges, uh, but then we talk about real legacy of sports venues of an Olympic games. Yeah, because that's the, the big issue. I mean, in Brazil, in particular, South Africa as well, you know, you have these gigantic uh, stadiums built not being used uh, and yeah, that, that's a public money. Also, that's the thing. The promises in the beginning is that will be mostly private money, but in the end, it turns out that it is public money that's needed. Uh, but it's good to hear that they are already looking into that and, and abolishing, like you said, this, this uh, capacity. And also, do you really need that? That's an important question because a lot of the time it feels like they think, oh, we're gonna be put on the map. Now people will know who we are and it's gonna save our economy and it's not that. And we've learned that that's not the reality. So do you really need these facilities? Will yeah, you use them? They ask this question, why do you want to host the Olympic games? And every organizer, every city should ask, why do I want this event? Hmm. What is the expected project vision, the event vision, what's the uh, outcome, what's the impact for my stakeholders? Yeah, yeah, because it's almost like that, do I need a 15 minutes of fame 
that all the media in the world is looking at us. And then when they leave, that's it, you know, and what we talk about is the problems that remain. So we're not talking how successful it was, we're talking about the problems. So then, uh, yeah, that's, that's not uh, very good. Are you, are you going to continue work? Do you, do you plan on continue working on bids or this is something that, no. Um... I want to say it's a dream to see the Olympic games coming to Austria in the next uh, 20 years. Uh, if the time uh, is right. So that's a dream. I want to see uh, really the Olympic Games in Austria at some time uh, in the future. But uh, working on bids can be frustrating. So I've done one, I've lost once. Uh, and it, the landscape of bidding is changing as well because more and more federations are coming into this dialogue stage. Mm. Uh, not really opening up uh, really bids, but starting the dialogue with various uh, organized or bidding committee, various uh, interested cities, and then starting to getting closer dialogue, like the IOC now does with Brisbane in Australia. Because um, a lot of money was stranded, a lot of emotions and knowledge was stranded in these bidding campaigns. Mm -hmm. Now, networking the importance of networking this is something that i tell the students from day one you start networking um and a lot of our experiences they happened because of networking so uh can you talk a little bit about that my first event i got to know a lot of people uh from sports the one person from austrian television now is head of the sports division of the entire Austrian uh, sports uh, uh, of the Austrian television company. Um, others uh, have uh, developed and you keep meeting them over the time. Um, of course, having known those people, I got the other uh, opportunity to be working at the Alpine Ski World Championships. At the world uh, level, I got to know people from the IOC during my PhD. So doing a bachelor, master thesis or PhD is also a good approach to extend your network. From there, I got into the uh, Olympic world and then uh, I started uh, to build my network in the Special Olympics world in Austria, uh, in Europe and then on a global level and we still uh, in touch and I think one is for live meetings and the other component is uh, just to make sure you're connected on uh, LinkedIn uh, but you need to be also relevant what you communicate uh, and I love this uh, and it gives you access uh, to interesting people who are who you can reach on LinkedIn and whatever comes next in social media yeah, I think LinkedIn is great. I use it a lot for networking. And it's like, oh, but I don't know anyone. Well, then introduce yourself, show your interest. You don't need to have a, a purpose in mind. Oh, I want a job or I want to interview. No, just, you know, I'm interested in this. Let's connect and, uh, and start from there. So, um, so let's talk now with all the technology available, um, especially now with this Corona pandemic that we're living, we're seeing uh, sports trying to adapt to this new world. Uh, so how do you see digitalization now and, and the potential for the future in sports? 
I think it's great. It's fantastic. And it's also not great. It's not fantastic. <laughs> uh, digitalization is here. So we don't have to reflect if it's coming or not. It's here. There is an amazing amount of data that is collected. In each ball, there can be a chip in each uh, ski boot, in each athlete's uh, shirt. And this data can be used to make the training possibilities better for the athlete. It can be advancing the coaching of the coaching and the teams. It can give more, more data for the fan in the stadium. It can reach out to the television viewer. And we've seen uh, also nice fan interaction coming into sports venues, the fans from at home uh, being on large screens uh, into the stadium. But we can also collect the data. If you look at 5G Stadia, um, on the one hand, you can, the people who have an electronic ticket, we know exactly how do they travel. And we see them live approaching to the stadium so we can brief the security on the entrance. We can do face recognition check. So we exactly know who is in the stadium. We put a lot of CCTV cameras. We have total control of the people in the stadium. We can observe any misbehavior in the stadium. We can actually tell the police uh, to find them and arrest them when they leave the stadium. And then here it starts getting a little critical. Mm. Do the sports fans, do, this, do the athletes know what is actually collected in big data? Who has access to the big data? So we're not only talking about digitalization in sense of what is possible, but also we have to reflect, do we want everything that is possible? And what is the next step? And who is driving the next step? Will Facebook be buying the television rights? Will it be Amazon Prime? Will it be a television company, a telecom, a mobile phone company, any person just says, I want to buy the rights hmm. of the Athletics uh, World Championships. Um, how is this going to be distributed? Uh, and I think this is challenges ahead. They are coming not in 10 years, but in next three years. And what can you create for the fans, for the athletes? And that I love to think about this. And uh, it's going so fast, so we have to be, as professors as well, catching up to understand what is actually going on. And then, of course, to teach our students uh, the concerns, the critical reflection, but on the other hand, also the creativity to create new, yeah. new products, new services that enhance our passion for sports. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you you brought us some good points that I didn't think about. You know, this this thing about controlling everyone that's on the stadium, it, it raises the critical questions, but it also raises that um, some football clubs perhaps can no longer say, yeah, we, we don't know what are the fans uh, ch uh, chanting racist uh, remarks to the players because, yeah, you can't know. So it's what are you going to do about that? And it seems that sometimes the clubs are thinking, they're, oh, there's nothing we can do. We can't control that. So perhaps that would be something that would, you know, keep these fans from 
you know, doing the, the behavior that they do at the moment, which is, yeah, uh, I can't believe that it still happens, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a good point. And like you said, anyone can, you know, put the money, I have the money, I want the rights for the broadcasting rights for these events. And it seems like sometimes it's also the responsibility of the organizations, the sport organizations to say, but yeah, but who are you? Uh, who can you reach? Uh, so why would I give you the, just because you have the money, uh, why would you, how many people in that country can you reach so they can have access to, to, to the sport? So it's also on them as well at some point to say, yeah, you have the money, but I rather take the, the cheapest bid that I know is actually gonna reach uh, the population, right? So Robert, thank you so much. It's always nice chatting with you as a colleague. You, you are a great colleague to, to, to have some conversation and interact and you support a lot. So I really, really appreciate it. And I have learned a lot from you. Maybe next time we select one topic and we go and dive into it. That would be fun. Maybe we have a student with us um having some questions that's also an idea uh, that just popped in um but yeah thank thanks again all right well thanks a lot i hope you enjoyed the conversation and got to know a little bit more about robert's experiences in our next episode i'll be having a chat with ispm alumna lotta maria mal and she will give you an update on what she's been doing since graduating in 2020 as part of the first ISPM cohort. For now, take care, stay safe. Cheers. <music> <music>